welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. And you know I'm not done gushing about Cher. I'm going to continue my gush train. Thank you so much again and again for your unbelievable generosity, the way in which you care about Faith Radio, the way you love Faith Radio, and the way you let us know that it's making a difference in your life. So my heart's been so full of gratitude that I thought, huh, I wonder if I couldn't find one of my very favorite guests to come on and talk about gratitude. So I'm on Ace Collins' website because he's just the consummate uh, storyteller and author, and I see a book that says Gratitude, and then I book him, and then I look a little bit more carefully, and it's the letters G-R and then the word attitude. So it's about your attitude. But I'm sure gratitude's in there somewhere. But the book he wrote 10 years ago, which his wife says is his favorite book, um, it really is the philosophy of his life, and that is gratitude with the big attitude in capital letters, practicing contagious optimism for positive change. That's the title of his book. That's what we're going to talk about this hour. It's fantastic. And I was even thinking of verses in Scripture that might uh, be about attitude. And I went right to Philippians 4, and verses 8 and 9 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So as you think about these things, it will shape your attitude. I'm pretty convinced of that. Now, I am a person that needs a little bit of help when it comes to being optimistic, so I cannot wait to bring Ace onto the show about gratitude, which is what is going on in my spirit, my heart. I'm just gushing with uh, gratitude and thankfulness for what happened over the last four days. But I also think of grace, and I think of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote about the costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. And such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and what costs God much cannot be cheap for us. So our hearts are full, and uh, as we think about gratitude, there's a few people better than Ace Collins to talk about some specifics of gratitude right from his book. And you look at his catalog, he's got 99 books that he's written. There uh, include novels, biographies, children's works, as well as books on history, culture, and faith. And I am always delighted when I get a chance to talk to Ace. Ace, welcome. It is great to be back with you. And talking about a book that is my wife's favorite is uh, its quite an opportunity because she uses this book uh, even when she teaches at the college level education majors. And so um, this is kind of a special book for me to talk about. And it's one of those books that I got that wasn't my agent's idea. It wasn't a publisher's idea. It was something that I wanted to do. I wanted to put in one place the stories that I had collected over the years about people that have influenced and shaped me. When you do what I do for a living, you have interviewed literally thousands of interesting people, thousands of people who are able to emote wisdom or through their lives, 
you have watched them continue to grow, to continue to overcome obstacles. And we got to thinking about the title. You mentioned it in the intro, you know, gratitude. Uh, gratitude was spelled normally when I titled the book. The, uh, the publisher, which is HarperCollins Zondervan, decided to put it as GR and then a capital attitude at the end of it because to a large degree, having gratitude is an attitude. It's something that you can choose to have or you can choose not to have. It depends on how you look at life. And so what we did when we wrote it was we looked at 10 different areas of gratitude, self-discipline, growth, courage, humor, tenacity, forgiveness, teamwork, service, integrity, and love. And you know, you mentioned the writings of Paul a while ago. Certainly when you get to the last chapter in this book, you know, and the greatest of these is love, you know, love is the ultimate, uh, I guess, the ultimate shaper of every attitude. But, you know, we began essentially with self-discipline, because without self-discipline, you're probably not going to have a good attitude because you're not going to achieve much. You know, you have to work to achieve. You have to continue to have that growth mindset in your faith and in your life to grow as a person of faith and also to grow as an individual in this world. Without that growth mindset, you're going to be stuck. And so, you know, I looked at people in that first chapter who who represented that growth mindset in my life and who I learned things from. And therefore, decades later, in some cases, I am still using what I learned from those individuals to grow up. And uh, and that takes some self-discipline. It takes self-discipline, and I'm writing a novel right now. It takes self-discipline to sit down and, and write several thousand words each and every day. And I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't gone through, you know, uh, high school basketball with Rick Schmidt. Rick Schmidt taught me a great deal. He's one of the players on my team about what it took to succeed in a craft. He worked and he worked and he worked, and he was in the gym hours after everybody else was there and eventually he plays in professional basketball. He His college is paid for, but it was those hours and hours and hours that nobody saw that shaped his life. When you look at a a, a minister of, of music that I had growing up in my church choir named Marion Mincer, he was a TV repairman. I'm old enough to remember TV repairmen. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, nowadays that doesn't happen, but he was a guy yeah. who when our when our church had a building project, this was a guy who had just borrowed money to add on to his house because they just had another child. They needed another bedroom. Instead, he decided we needed a church more, and he gave all that money and then had to pay it back without seeing any results in his own life, but he gave the money to the church for the building project. Marion gave so much that more, pe more and more people came to choir. And the other person I mentioned in that chapter was a very good friend, a man, a woman who's been retired now from 20 years from the music business, one of the greatest entertainers in my mind of all time, Barbara Mandrell. Nobody worked as hard as her craft as Barbara Mandrell. In each of these cases, the, the people who were working for something looked beyond what they were trying to accomplish for themselves. In Barbara's case, she wanted to make sure that the fans knew how important they were to her. She always told me, they're my boss. She worked mm. hard to please them using our God-given talent. Marian Mincer, as that volunteer music, music minister, gave everything he had to that craft, and it became even more important than the job that paid him. 
And then Rick Schmidt was simply trying to be the best basketball player he could be. He had no, no plans of going on and achieving things at another level. He just wanted to be the best he could be when he was in junior high and high school. And that, that dedication, that work, that self-discipline uh, took them to places that they probably talent-wise had no way of going to those places. They overachieved. But you mm -hmm. overachieve if you have self-discipline. You probably love the, the great Abraham Lincoln axiom that says, I'm a great believer in luck. The harder I work, the more luck I seem to have. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, I told somebody the other day, you know, when they asked me, do you, are you superstitious? And I, I said, what do you mean? She said, he, she said, well, do you believe a black cat brings bad luck? And I said, I guess that depends on what happens next. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you're, you're in a situation where, you know, superstitions are based on what happens to you next. They have no validity. You can't test them. They're, but you can look at people who have self-discipline. There's two things that I found in these individuals. This hard work, even if they didn't achieve everything they wanted to achieve, was worth it because mm -hmm. they had grown as a person. And therefore, even if they failed, even if they didn't get that honor or that, that award they wanted, they nevertheless felt a sense of I am reaching for, for all of the talents that God give, God's given me, and he's given me now the opportunity to go beyond what I thought I could go, you know, where I thought I could end up. And that was amazing. Mm -hmm. You know, the second one is growth. And growth is something, and I'm going to tell my audience this right now because it's true. Age does not matter for growth. You can teach an old dog new tricks. And growth is something that I think all of us want, need to continue to have to have a fulfilling life. I mean, you know, Isaac Watts was 16, 400 years ago when he was meeting with his father. And you know, I've discussed this story in the past. And it was after a church service, and his father was one of the leaders of the church, and his father, you know, made the comment over Sunday dinner, you know, 400 years ago, you know, what do you think, what'd you think of the service? Isaac was honest. He said, it was boring. You know, we sing the same songs over and over and over again, and there's only, we sing them out of the book of songs, and there's only six different tunes we sing them to, and you look at the, you look at your congregation, Dad, they're going to sleep. They don't care. <laughs> and what what did Isaac Watts Sr. do to Isaac Watts Jr.? Did he punish him? He said, no, if you can do something better, then do it. The next week, the 16-year-old wrote a song they sang in church that revolutionized church music for all of us because it suddenly became personal. We started writing hymns based on our experiences. In the sense, Isaac Watts um, created gospel music. He created it because of a challenge that his father had. The key to the story, though, is the father was not afraid to change. He was not afraid of growth. He was not afraid of what could happen. I, I remember years and years ago, the Arkansas Razorbacks were playing uh, in the Orange Bowl against a heavily favored Oklahoma team. And Oklahoma was a 30-some-odd point favorite, and Lou Holtz was the coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks. And he devised a game plan and just murdered Oklahoma. And after the game at the press conference, one of the, uh, you know, one of the uh, members of the media asked him this question, Coach, is this the best moment of your life? Lou Holtz looked back at him and grinned and said, well, I hope I haven't had the best moment of my life yet. That, to me, is a growth attitude. You're continuing mm -hmm. not to look back at things you've accomplished, but look forward at things that you can do.
Remember, Daniel Boone was 75 years old, left Kentucky, moved to Missouri, looking for new vistas to explore. Age does not define what we can do. Even our disabilities don't define on how we can grow. We can always find ways to move forward and grow. Yeah. Ace, let me take a little break. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about his book, Gratitude, Practicing Contagious Optimism for Positive Change. We'll take a short break and be right back. presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. Ace Collins is my guest. We're talking about his book, Gratitude, Practicing Contagious Optimism for Positive Change. And you're giving us gold here, Ace. I love this. Um, I love the idea that we need to uh, be open to growth. And that's that's probably an obstacle for a lot of people. It is, and I think it's an obstacle. I get nervous. I think it's an obstacle for all of us because we're always afraid that we're going to make a mistake. And and that's the last thing we need to be afraid of. Uh, Making mistakes are part of life. That's what what happens. But if you never make a mistake, it means you've never tried anything. And how sad is it to end up in life with the first words at at your funeral service being, they had a lot of potential. You don't want to hear that. You want to hear that this is a person that exceeded their potential. This right. is a person that did more than anyone thought them capable of doing. Um, in, in my chapter on courage, I talked about Rosa Parks. There, there's no reason for us to talk about her here. She's one of the people I cited because, yes, the courage to realize something was wrong and stand up and actually, in her case, sit down on a bus and change it is remarkable. And but it takes guts to make hard decisions. It also takes courage to accept responsibility for those decisions. A lot of people don't realize that uh, Eisenhower, you know, right before D-Day, which it was his operation, he wrote a lengthy apology to the world in case D-Day failed taking full responsibility for it. Not the troops, not his other generals, he was the one who was going to make that courageous decision to read this address on radio apologizing for making a mistake. Ultimately, obviously, it wasn't a mistake, and it led to the winning of World War II. But we do need the courage not just to try things, but the courage to admit when we've made mistakes. Um, I I remember as a kid uh, in northern Arkansas, one of the uh, one of the most prejudiced individuals I knew was my grandfather. He was an incredibly prejudiced man. And we lived in a county at that point with no African-American people. It, you know, in truth, at that point, Fulton County, Arkansas, you were a minority if you weren't Church of Christ, Baptist, or Methodist. I mean, you know, that was the way it was. You know, uh, if, you know, with all those, one of those outside churches. I mean, literally speaking, we, that's how white bread this, this area was. And yet my grandfather had grown up 
with his best friend being a, an African-American man his own age. When they were six years old, they went to different schools, even though they were neighbors and never associated with each other again. When my grandfather was in, the 50, in his 50s, in the early to mid-60s, he was on walking from his job to Fannie McGuffey's Cafe to eat his meal. And he runs into John Fudge, who used to live next door to him. And he was so excited to see his old friend, this, this black man now who was his age, who he hadn't seen in 50 years. And they sat down on the curb and they started talking about, about life experiences. And he found out that John was waiting for a bus that was going to take him to Batesville, Arkansas. And he said, John, when's your bus going to be here? And he said, it's going to be another two hours. And he said, don't wait out in the hot sun. Let's go in and have a, have a meal at Fannie McGuffey's Cafe. And John Fudge looked at my grandfather and said, they don't serve me in there. Mm -hmm. My grandfather told me later that 50 years of prejudice slapped him in the face like a punch from Joe Lewis. Mm -hmm. My grandfather looked back at John Fudge and said, they will today. And my grandfather and John Fudge integrated that, that restaurant. My grandfather changed his attitude so much, admitting that he was wrong, the courage to admit that you're wrong and, ch and choose a new direction you know, was what my grandfather showed me at that particular point, the courage to admit that you're wrong. My grandfather later went to every family reunion as long as he was healthy enough for the Fudge family and took his brothers with him. And that became the impetus of my grandfather being a part of the civil rights movement in Arkansas. So when you're looking at that kind of growth, and that's one thing, but when you're looking at the courage to admit 50 years of my life has been a lie, and I've been wrong, and I haven't been a good Christian because of my attitude. Boy, that speaks volumes. Um, you know, what is it Mark Twain said? I find it curious that physical courage is so common and moral courage is so rare. That's what my grandfather showed that day. Wow. You know, we don't have to go into depth here, but a classic biblical example of somebody admitting they were wrong and willing to pay the consequences was the prodigal son who went back home ready to fall on his knees and tell his father, you don't owe me anything. I will be a slave for you. I just want to come back and apologize for being wrong. That is a classic example of something that we need to do each and every day when we've been wrong, not only to other people, but when we failed God as well. The courage to, uh, the courage to apologize, the courage to, you know, I've always said the hardest two words to say in the world was, I, I'm sorry. The next hardest words to say are three words, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. If you that can do story, that, you're going to be a yeah. positive person. Yeah. Ace, that story about your grandfather and Mr. Fudge is just, you just hit me. It hit me like a ton. I just got tears in my eyes hearing that exchange. It's so beautiful. And believe me, that one move, that one change in life made my grandfather my hero. And, and to this day, he remains oh. my hero because of his yeah. ability to admit his mistakes. You know, yeah. I, after, yeah, the next chapter, we, by the way, we focus on is humor, and that's just as important as courage. And a lot of people, they just can't relax. They can't laugh. They can't enjoy life. They, they're too serious all the time. And uh, humor opens, opens doors. Let me put it that way. If you see somebody who's got a sour expression, you don't want to invite them into your house. If you see someone with a sour expression coming down the street, you want to avoid them. you got to have that smile to open the doors so that people can see what's in your heart. Um, I think the best speech I ever heard in my life was on ESPN, the very first ESPY show, when Jenny, Jimmy Valvano, dying of cancer, got up there and gave this incredible speech. And it was so positive. And this was a man who had six weeks to live. 
Yet he was talking about enjoying every moment of life. And I remember the thing he said that just blew me away was each day you need to do three things. You need to find something that makes you think. You need to find something that makes you cry. And that can be good tears or bad tears, he said. Happy or sad. And you got to find something that makes you laugh. And I think to be an outwardly optimistic person, you need to be looking for those three things each and every day. Uh, there was a, a young woman I knew that was fighting cancer when she was at a university. And she was an English major. Her name was Beth Nance. And they gave Beth about a 10% chance to live. She had Ewing sarcoma. And she was on crutches. She was going through chemotherapy. She was a beautiful girl. And they, she had a beautiful wig on. And it was a wig that nobody would have known was a wig. And she was going to an English class. She had to get there early because of the crutches. And she had to climb three flights of stairs. And there was a young freshman. Beth was a junior who was across from her. And Beth was pulling off her poncho because it was raining. And when her poncho came off, so did her hair. And this, oh. young freshman, this young freshman boy was just looking at her and just his mouth was just, you know, eyes open, mouth, jaw hitting the hitting the chest, mouth just almost watering because he was so shocked. And I, how do you handle that situation? Beth looked at him, looked over at him and said, this is what happens when you're an English major. Um, <laughs> the attitude of being positive, even when everything's going wrong in your life, finding something that puts people at ease. Well, guess what? That little statement that she made opened up the door for Beth to share her faith with this young man. If she had complained, if she had griped, if she had sit there and talked about how horrible it was that cancer was grabbing her, that wouldn't have happened. That is the power of humor in the midst of tragedy. Mm -hmm. I love the passage in John where, you know, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. That's, um, Amen. Uh, I think, the Good News translation. But how many uh, times are Christians characterized as people of good cheer? And that's the big problem we have. A lot of us look sour, like, you know, we've mm -hmm. been given the greatest gift on earth and we walk out looking like we're unhappy. And I'm yeah. sitting here thinking, how sad is that? You know, you should be jumping up and down. You know, there was a gospel group many years ago that I loved to watch perform because of how happy they were. They weren't necessarily my favorite kind of music because, <laughs> but it was, it was the Happy Goodman family, you know, the, oh, yeah. and they always were smiling. They were always happy. So they were singing a style of music I wouldn't have normally loved liked but i loved it with them singing it because it was so sincere and it gave them such great joy yeah the delivery system was so amazing you couldn't you couldn't oh. help yourself mm -hmm. yeah east collins is my guest he's with me for the whole hour we'll take a little break when we come back we're going to continue talking about his book gratitude practicing contagious optimism for positive change be right back presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Ace Collins on. We're talking about one of his 99 books, and I'm not making that up. It's called Gratitude, Practicing Contagious Optimism for Positive Change. That's something I could uh, use a little help on. And I bet many of you listening uh, are feeling the same way. All right, Ace, um, where did we last leave off? We left off the humor. We're going to go to tenacity yet. Yeah. 
uh, next. Well, you and I talked off the air while I go about a mutual friend, Rick Schmidt, who I talked about earlier. Next time yes. you see him, by the way, by the next time you see him, call him Roderick Lee Schmidt. That'll that'll blow him <laughs> away. That's, that's his real name. All right. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, the uh, tenacity. Let's talk about William Carey. Uh, if you are familiar with missionary work, you're probably familiar with William Carey. Uh, Carey was uh, the father of the missionary movement. He was a a bivocational preacher, if you will, in England a couple of centuries ago. And he felt a need to go take the message to the world. He was a cobbler by trade. So he went to India. And he spent basically 40 years in India. And those 40 years, one person accepted Jesus. Imagine how you would feel if for 40 years you preached the gospel and one person accepted Jesus. Yet the story of this man's tenacity got back to England, and scores and scores of people felt they needed to follow him to to India to talk about Jesus, and they did, and they actually started a Christian movement that, that's still growing in areas of India. But there had to be a man first who failed for 40 years until he got his first convert, and that was the only convert he ever had. Um, you and I talked once a year, basically, on, on a book that I wrote called The Stories Behind the Best Love Songs at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is my best-selling book. It sold over a million copies. Um, what most people don't realize is I started pitching that book 10 years before we found a publisher. I actually found a publisher for that book after being rejected 27 times. I got rejected 27 times by 24 different publishers, so that means that three publishers rejected me twice on that idea. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I thought it was such a good idea, I kept pitching it. And, and here's the story of that book. And, and I think it, it will offer some inspiration to people out there who are worried about being rejected when they share the faith or being rejected when they're trying to do something in their career. Um, I wrote a book uh, about the Cathedral Quartet. George Johnson, Glenn Payne had read my book on Lassie and came to me and asked me if I would write their book, which was for, which was for Harper Collins Zondervan. I agreed to do it, and that was a work for hire project for me, so I wasn't keeping up with the sales uh, because, you know, I was getting a paycheck flat, and that was it. Well, George called me one day, and he and I became really great friends, and he said, you know, this book's in its eighth printing hardcover. He said, this book is going crazy. And that's when the publisher, Zondervan, called me. Uh, Cindy Lambert, as a matter of fact, was the the acquisitions editor, and she said, have you ever thought about doing the story behind gospel music's greatest songs? And I said, being somewhat of a smart aleck, I reached into my file cabinet and I pulled out a rejection letter I'd gotten for that very idea five years before from, from Zondervan, and I faxed it to Cindy. <laughs> I heard her start laughing, and I realized, okay, the fax has gotten there, okay? Uh-huh. And when she came back on the phone, I said, as a matter of fact, I have. And so that book went into four printings. And this is 2000, and Cindy calls me back and she says, Ace, is there anything else we rejected that we should have accepted? And I said, yeah, the story's behind the best love songs of Christmas. They took a, a chance on that. I actually agreed to write it. They still didn't believe in it. I agreed to write it for basically no advance, just enough to cover my research, hoping it would sell. And, of course, it hit number three on Amazon.com that year and just has gone crazy ever since and spawned nine other Christmas books. But it was rejected 27 times over 10 years. If you believe in something, you have to have the tenacity to continue to push it, and you push it, and you push it. William Carey did that, and and because of Carey and reading about him, I kept doing that with the Christmas book, and eventually 
it became the book that, that really, in truth, put me on the on the map as a writer. So don't ever give up. You know, that was how Jimmy Valvano ended his speech when he was dying of cancer. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. And I think if you believe in something, hey, that person that you, you told about the gospel to, they may have rejected you then, but they may hear it, hear what you said 15 years later. So don't mm-hmm. give up just because you were rejected once. Continue to pitch your story and pitch your faith with others. After yeah. that, let's talk about forgiveness. Boy, that's okay, I got, to... one, I got, I got yeah, one more but... question about sure. how you maintain balance and equilibrium when you're dealing with so much rejection. Uh, I know you're persevering, you got tenacity, but how do you keep yourself moving forward when you're dealing with this much rejection? I don't know. I, I always I tell everybody that it was my college dating life that prepared me for rejection. <laughs> uh, the, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know. Uh, seriously, I, uh, I think what it amounts to is you, you just have, if you believe in something, you've got the faith. You've also got to do one other thing that we can talk about. And that's read the rejections or listen to the rejections because you can, therefore, adapt and and approach things in a different way. And you're still selling what you believe in, but you're selling it in a slightly different package. You've got to find the package that meets the person that you're talking to. And and I think, you know, that's a key to listen to the criticism and then and adapt a little bit for it, because some of it's going to be legitimate. I mean, some of it's going to hit home. You know, you we don't have all the answers. We need to le- listen to people who are sitting there saying, OK, I don't like this idea. Well, why? Ask the question. Get that answer and you can adapt a little bit, too. I, I mm-hmm. just think that, you know, heaven knows that, you know, the missionaries like Kerry get rejected over and over again, never gave up. I, I have no reason to give up on the talent that God's given me. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness. I, I, I actually had a bunch of people I cited here. Uh, but I want to talk about one in particular who is fighting uh, cancer right now, and that's John, Representative John Lewis. Um, I've had an opportunity to meet with him a couple of times. As a matter of fact, my novel, Color of Justice, which won the Christie Award, was kind of based on a story that he told me, or not based on it, but he inspired it with his life. John Lewis was a, a member, a student at Fisk University in Nashville, and he marched at Selma. He also tried to open... Uh, a restaurant in the South to black people. He went up and stood at the kitchen. He and two friends went up and sat at the counter and and ordered breakfast. And four members of the Ku Klux Klan drugged them out of that restaurant and beat them almost to death. Um, there was a picture on the front page that throughout the South the next day of one of those members of the KKK had pulled his hood off and had taken an egg and 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 actually broke that egg over this unconscious John Lewis's head and made some kind of statement like, well, here's your breakfast. Mm. Now, John Lewis went on to not only survive that incident after being in the hospital for quite a while, but become a very uh, accomplished and respected representative from Georgia. And he is in Congress right now. Now, what many of us need to remember, he is fighting uh, cancer as well. So he hasn't been in Congress for a while. I don't know if he will survive because he's got pancreatic cancer, which has a high, you know, a tremendously high uh, mortality rate. But John Lewis and I were talking and he said, you know, what happened? He said, 50 years later, I'm in my office and I get a call. In the call, the secretary says, there's somebody who wants to talk to you. He's outside your district. Do you want to talk to him? He said, yeah, go ahead and put him on. The call was from a guy named Elwin Wilson. And Elwin Wilson said, you probably don't 
know who I am, but I'm the, I'm the Klansman who cracked the egg over your head. I'm the man who almost killed you, beating you up. I'm the man who slandered and, and, and you to your face and cussed you to your face. And, you know, the, John Lewis was somewhat taken back. And then Wilson continued by saying, I just want you to know the way you've lived your life, the things that you have done, I'm no longer that person anymore. I watched you, and now I'm a person with, with African-American friends. I'm a person who, who believes in equality. I'm a person who's left that life behind. And I know you can never forgive me for what I did, but I want to tell you how sorry I am. Mm. John Lewis's next words basically framed up why Wilson, Elwin Wilson changed. The words were this, Elwin, I forgave you the moment it happened. Elwin Wilson and John Lewis became close friends and went out to eat once a week for the remainder of Wilson's life. I forgave you the moment it happened. That is the power of forgiveness. And it emulates Christ on the cross. Uh, that is, there's no more classic example of the, than the gospel lived than John Lewis telling this man who almost beat him to death, I forgave you the moment it happened. Wow. That's just so amazing, Ace. That's just an incredible story. Yeah. If you have one so, more story on forgiveness, I, I've got time because this is so powerful. You know, that, that is such a powerful thing. I, I think the thing that we need to remember about forgiveness, and there's stories in the book on it, if you, and, and you can get gratitude directly from me if you want by going to my website. So, you know, I can give you, I can sell you a site. I've got them on sale. I can sell you a copy of, of gratitude. They're hard to find in bookstores right now. But, uh, I, there's still a lot of people who, who write me wanting them after reading them and pass them on to other people. But mm -hmm. I think the thing about forgiveness is it, you're not forgiving someone for themselves. You're forgiving them for yourself. Forgiveness, when we forgive someone, it lifts a huge burden off our shoulders. You know, the carrying the grudge, be, wanting to be the person who seeks revenge, you know, that that negates every bit of, of Christian example that you have in life. You have to be someone who is willing to forgive someone that has wronged you. Um, we have a foster daughter who's done that many times. Uh, Jasmine's parents uh, were drug addicts. Her mother tried to sell her for drugs when Jasmine was 14. And yet Jasmine continues to forgive her parents, even though they're still not there yet. They're still on drugs. They still have problems. But Jasmine still prays for them and still hopes that someday they can know what she knows, which is faith, and what faith can do to your life. Wow. Amazing. So powerful. All right. So uh, after forgiveness, then what comes next? Teamwork. Something that okay. you and I can relate to because we're surrounded by teams that work with us all the time. I, you know, I always say tell people, I, I'm only as good as the editors who work with me on books and the marketing mm -hmm. team that puts it out, the cover people who design it. Writing is a part of teamwork. And I think teamwork is necessary. Remember, before I tell you the story of this one person that I think is going to blow you away, Jesus put together a team and they had to learn yeah. to work together and look what they accomplished. Look what those yeah. 11 dis disciples that carried the gospel forward accomplished but first, they had to learn to work together. First, they had to learn to work with, with their captain, who was Jesus Christ. You know, all of those things that went on. I, I was sitting, I'm a basketball fan, and I, I'm particularly a college basketball fan. 
And let's go back 15 years from ago, and I'm sitting in Reunion Arena in Dallas, Texas. They have since torn it down. It's been replaced by um, American Airlines Center there. And I'm watching the Big 12 tournament. I'm there to watch the guys' tournament, but I'm also going over and watching the, the women's tournament as well. And I have never been to the state of Kansas. I know no one from Kansas, and I'm watching Kansas State play the school that I graduated from, Baylor. And I'm watching a point guard who's a freshman wearing number five, by the way, and I'm watching her do things that physically she should not be able to do. I'm watching her play one of the nation's best teams off their feet. I find myself from 30 rows up being captured by something in her eyes. I could not understand what it was, but there was a fire in her eyes that I had to know more about. She almost pulled off the upset by herself that day. So I turned around the next week and called her coach, Deb Patterson at Kansas State University. And I said, Deb, You've never met me. My name is Ace Collins. I want to know something about your point guard, your freshman point guard. And Deb said, well, you need to talk to Cammie Etheridge. She recruited her. So I talked to the assistant coach, Cammie Etheridge. Cammie said, well, we didn't want her. So as a matter of fact, we had decided that she wasn't strong enough, big enough, or athletic enough to play at the D1 level. So we were passing on her. We knew she wanted to be here. She had been to all our camps, but we were passing on her. And she said, but now you need to understand why we recruited her, so I'm going to give you the number of her parents. Well, I called and talked to her mom, Jane Lenning. Jane said, oh, yeah. She said, Shaylee was, wanted to go to K-State real bad, and when signing day come, came, she was crying because not a, not a single D1 school wanted her. But she said, then Kansas State called back. And they offered her a scholarship simply because the point guard they were after had rejected them at the last moment. And they thought that because Shaley was number one in her class academically, because she was a, a, a president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, they thought she would be a good example, even though she would never play a single moment they knew of a game unless it was in cleanup action. So Shaley got to go to her dream school, and she showed up there. And I, then I, so I called from Jane Lenning, I called her, her coach back, and I said, okay, now they told me to call you and tell, tell me why you really recruited her. And that is when the story came to life in a big way. When Shaley was a junior, little sublet Kansas uh, was going to, was on a roll. They had lost a game. But like little schools everywhere, this little school really only had Shaley and three other pretty good basketball players and then they would just throw a fifth person out there. I'm not going to use the person's real name. But we're going to call her Ashley. Ashley was just there to fill a role. As a matter of fact, the coach who I talked to at Sublet said, well, the only reason we had her on the court was because they required you to have five people. <laughs> so uh, he told Shaley, who was running the offense, whatever you do, don't throw it to Ashley. Bad things happen when you throw it to Ashley. Well, Shaley kept throwing it to Ashley two or three times a game, and Ashley would either drop it, fumble it, dribble it off her foot, or throw a bad pass. Well, the coach couldn't get her to stop throwing it to Ashley, and they were still winning, but he wanted her to quit throwing it to Ashley. And so he called her folks, and Jane and, Jane and Steve had a meeting and they with Shaley, and they said, you know, you're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing Ashley when you do this. Just quit throwing the ball to Ashley. Well, she kept throwing the ball to Ashley anyway. So... The coach then, and the parents brought in the big guns. Shaley went to the Catholic church with her mom in the morning and the Baptist church with her friends at night. They called in the priest and the pastor, and they took Shaley out, <laughs> out to eat. And I talked to both of them. 
Neither one will take credit for saying this. They will only say one of them said this. Shaley, God doesn't want you to throw the ball to Ashley. She kept throwing the ball to Ashley. Let's move ahead to the finals of the state championship when they finally run into a team that can stop Shaley Lenning. Shaley throws the ball to Ashley five or six times that night, and Ashley knocks down four or five threes and becomes the most valuable player in the game. <laughs> and after the game was over, after the game was over, Shaley walked up to this group of people, including her parents, her coach, and the priest and the pastor, and looked at them and said, if I hadn't had faith in Shaley, she wouldn't have had, if I hadn't had faith in Ashley, she wouldn't have had faith in herself. Oh, All wow. I was doing was giving out my personal faith. Wow. And when we come back, I'm going to show you, tell you the end of that story. I can't wait. Ace Collins is my guest. We'll take a short break and be right back. the show so glad to be talking to ace collins today he's written 99 books the one we're chatting about today this is uh philosophy of life it's also his wife's favorite book and i was on amazon.com there there was only one copy left uh available so you might want to head over to ace's uh website to pick it up ace uh, is it just acecollins.com or what's the best place to acecollins.com yeah and you can click on the okay. cover of the book and it should tell you how to get there if it doesn't then just email me directly there's an email uh link at the top of the page so, yeah, okay, you can find me. So. Uh, I told you I, I finished a story. Yeah, I finished a story in Shaley State Championship. She said, she said, you know, I'm just living out my faith. And then she, then she looked at them and said, if I hadn't had faith in Ashley, she wouldn't have had faith in herself. And she's been working every night after practice with me all year long for this moment. And I knew that when the moment came, she would come through for us. And then she looked at the, everybody there, and she said, all I was do, doing was living out Matthew 25, 35 through 40, feeding the least of these, and walked off. Um, anyway, <laughs> Kansas State That's took hysterical. a gamble. Kansas State took a gamble on her because of that attitude. And she ends up starting every game in her career except for four when she has mono. That's it. That's uh -huh. the only four she ever missed. She set the triple-double record as a little point guard. She got 22 rebounds one night. She was always doing stuff that you shouldn't have been able to do. Kansas State was so blown away by her that they retired her jersey the last game of the season, her senior year. Now, most jerseys aren't retired for years after you play. They retired Shaley's the senior year with 8,000 fans there, 8,000 eyes wow. looking on. And I now know Shaley real well. They, they make a terrible mistake. They are, they are taking that jersey. They just had this ceremony after the game. They're bringing it up into the Raptors. And they, the mistake is they had, an, they had an announcer there with a live mic where everybody could hear who asked Shaley a question and gave her the mic. Now, Shaley speaks about 240 minutes, words a minute with guests up to 350. She can <laughs> articulate like nobody. She's a little brown-eyed, blue-eyed, excuse me, a brown-eyed brunette homecoming queen and boy she can she can tell you stuff and and she they said Shaley what's it feel like to have your number retired and she looked up in the rafters and she said that's not my number and everybody looked up in the rafters 8,000 people thinking we've hung the wrong jersey and looked up and said no it's number five and that's when she explained when I came to Kansas State they had my high school number laid out which was 13 
I asked for number five because there's five people on a team. I realized that every person on that team plays a very important role. They're not retiring my jersey, they're retiring my team. They're retiring the coaches who worked with me. They're retiring what, the, what I learned from my priest and my pastor. They're retiring the lessons my parents taught me. And then she looked up at the 8,000 fans and she said, they're retiring the jersey of every one of you who has supported me and walks off. Wow. What? How come I have not seen this movie? I'm dying <laughs> over here. Shaylee ended up playing three years in the in the WNBA. She wasn't drafted, but she did play three years. And now mm -hmm. she lives in Phil in Philadelphia, where she works with, with a Christian uh, outreach organization for battered women in Philadelphia. She has her master's from seminary, and she is living a Christian life. And Shaylee and I still remain close to this day. So what an amazing uh, hero that she has been for my life. And Normally, in normal times, we're feeding between 40 and 50 college students at our house on Sunday night. And about once a semester, Shaylee Skypes with us and, and gives the devotional on those nights. Uh, real quick, we don't have much time. Um, we got service, we've got integrity, and we've got love that we didn't get to cover today. But I will tell you this. You see bumper stickers all the time that say, I love Texas, I love Minnesota, I love my collie, I love my bulldog, I love the USA. But why is it so impossible for us to say, I love you. Um, that is something that trips on our tongues. Even though we love people, we have problems telling them we love them. And I think one of the most important things that you can do is to tell someone you love them. Uh, uh, my best friend in the entire world is a former country music entertainer named Louise Mandrell. Talked about her sister Barbara earlier. Louise basically will not get off the phone with me or will not send me a text without telling me she loves me and she wants to hear it back. And if I don't tell her back, she'll call me back and say, you didn't tell me you loved me. She <laughs> taught me how she taught me how to tell other people that I love them and how important it is to tell someone you love them. You have no idea what that will do to someone. The other thing that's a part of love, be loving enough to find somebody who made an impact in your life and write them a thank you note. Tell them that you not only love them, but tell them what they did for you because it will encourage them to continue doing that same thing for other people. If they don't ever hear back from someone who they've impacted, they may not realize they've impacted you and they may give up trying. But if you tell them, a high school teacher, this is what you taught me. If you tell an aunt or an uncle, this is what you showed me, then they're gonna have the confidence to show those same things and that same amount of loving touch to other people as well. So not only tell them you love them, but tell them what you learned from them and how important they are to your life. And if you can, buy thank you notes and send a thank you note that is in, that has that written out. I did that for my grandfather, who I mentioned early in the show was my hero. Mm -hmm. And the letter meant so much to him, he kept it. And he asked my parents if when he died, I would read that letter at his funeral. And I got to read that letter at his funeral, again, telling everyone in that huge crowd, why he was my hero. And they learned from what I learned from him and took it with them. I know that for a fact. Put it to words. Tell them you love them in words, but also put it in writing and tell them how they've impacted your life. That is love lived out. Yeah. Ace, if the house was on fire, I bet your grandpa would have run into the house, uh, grabbed grandma, and then also that letter. That's right. You know, by the way, uh, I didn't get to the point where somebody asked me, you know, we, we got to the point, because this, this goes back to an old show. We'll get into this another time. You know, who's the most important Christian role model you have? And I, I always tell people it's Lassie. 
<laughs> because Lassie loved unconditionally, was honest to a fault, would lay down his life for the people he was serving, did not judge and was quick to forgive. Lassie shares. The list goes on. If the world were full of people just like Lassie on TV, this would be a pretty great place to live. Ace, I always love having you on, and I appreciate you uh, always saying yes to my invitations. It's really wonderful to um, hear about the story of gratitude and practicing contagious optimism for positive change. Ace Collins has been my guest. You can head over to his website, acecollins.com, and pick up a copy of it. Ace, have a great weekend. You too, and thank you for having me on. I enjoy it so much being a part of Faith Radio. Yeah, thank you so much. Again, Ace Collins, go to acecollins.com. We are going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to have uh, Dr. Alex McFarland with us. I'm looking forward to that. That's all the show we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for being such uh, great supporters of Faith Radio. It means the world to me. I hope you have a wonderful night. Time to ring the bell. See you next week.